here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content's added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hook segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hook segment. Instead of diving right in, today I'm going to wade in. You see, we mix things up on the show. Right, Carly, would you like to begin with our first query letter? Dear Ms. Waters, Ms. Murray, and Ms. Lyra, I am an avid listener to your podcast and deeply grateful for the time you are investing in aspiring writers like myself. Here is Seeds, a 70,000 young adult fiction that tells the story of a white 15-year-old fighting against his own beliefs after perpetrating an act of racism. Consider the emotional exploration of The Reluctant Journal of Henry K. Larson meets The Racial Tension of All American Boys. 
Seeds contain scenes of racism, Islamophobia, violence, suicidal ideation, and animal cruelty. Entering grade 10, Jake's life is overturned when Sumia, a black Muslim girl, walks into his first period class and immediately tensions start to rise. Jake's best friend Carter begins to target Sumia with quiet insults and offensive notes. Uncertain but unwilling to risk his own position, Jake silently stands by. That is until Carter sets him up for a confrontation with Sumia, where, in the heat of the moment, Jake reaches up, pulls off Sumia's hijab, leaving her humiliated and exposed. Jake's grandfather, who has filled the role of father since Jake's own dad passed away years ago, sees a deeper meaning rooted in Jake's action and sets up an impossible consequence, math tutoring with Sumia. Feeling betrayed and angry, Jake rejects the plan and refuses to attempt. However, after a painful loss, Jake sets out to follow through with his grandpa's idea and begins tutoring. When the tutoring sessions go beyond math and begin to cultivate Jake's understanding of white privilege and systemic racism, he finds the pressure with Carter intensifying. Jake is forced to choose, risk losing his friends and status by following the path Sumia has shown him, or return to what is comfortable by rejecting Sumia and ultimately himself. I am a teacher who has received the Premier's Award for my work on acceptance in schools. At the same time, I have also been disciplined multiple times, including suspension for speaking out on equity. A white teacher living in Toronto, I have seen firsthand how systemic racism oppresses students, parents, and colleagues within schools and communities. Seeds is my debut novel that explores whiteness, racism, Islamophobia, and what it means to truly be human. Grateful for your consideration. Thanks, Carly. Right, Cece, would you like to tell us what you think of the query letter? I wanted to begin by saying that I really appreciate the content warning. The author mentions that it contains scenes of animal cruelty, so I would already know that I couldn't be the reader for this, and it really is appreciated. One thing that stood out to me in terms of improving is that there were very strange word choices. I'll give you examples. Jake's life is overturned when Sumya. I thought that overturned was such a strange word to use. Um, and when the author mentions tensions start to rise, I was, okay, literally, because she walks into the classroom and tensions start to rise. So it was, it's literally like if this were a movie, it's literally a scene where she walks in and then that happens. The, the, the cause and effect felt a little awkward. Another example, which was the, the, the biggest one actually for me, is when his grandfather, Jake's grandfather, sets up an impossible consequence, math tutoring with Sumia. Does he mean like a punishment? Like like a like a teachable moment for for Jake? And I'm I was confused about the plot. I was confused about who was tutoring who? Like, is she tutoring him? And if so, does she want to tutor him? Even towards the end, um, when he says rejecting Sumia. So is Sumia wanting to be friends with him? Like, I I didn't understand where she stood in all this. So that was quite confusing for me. And I think it's important. I know that this is Jake's story and it's told from Jake's point of view, and I appreciate that. But I do think that focusing too much on the main character when there's another character that's so essential to the story can leave us with questions that lead to confusion and not to curiosity. All right, Cece, why don't you let us know what you thought of those opening pages? With the pages, I thought that we're probably starting in the wrong place. We read five pages of this and Sumya is not mentioned. Now, I thought to myself, maybe this is because they're establishing, you know, Jake as a person, and then we're going to see Sumia walk in. Sometimes that happens, especially in YA, and that's totally okay. 
But really what we see from Jake's life is the same. Essentially, the opening scene is is Jake at his job and his boss appears and his boss says, oh, this is Malcolm. I'm Jake and Malcolm already know each other. And Malcolm is someone who Jake, Jake picked on in school. And then we have a scene where Jake is hanging out with his friends and Malcolm shows up and his friends don't know that he and Malcolm kind of became, you know, not friends, but friendly. Um, and Jake and his friends tease Malcolm and Jake joins in the teasing or doesn't do anything. Just And then he races after Malcolm. I think that if the idea is to establish that Jake is someone who is susceptible to peer pressure, you're, you're doing that. It's 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 hitting that mark um but i do think it can be compressed it took a long time to really just convey one message i didn't get a lot of a lot about jake i don't get a sense of who his family is what his dreams are what his aspirations are i would want him to feel like a whole character and not just as a boy who often succumbs to peer pressure there were a few lines that i think could be improved so for example malcolm struggled to fit in he was socially awkward and was an easy target kids don't think like that kids do, that's like an adult thing to say like to say that someone's socially awkward and doesn't fit in big, big picture kids would mention something specific they would mention like oh he's the kid who smells like whatever another example of a big picture moment when is when um there's a line that says the first day with malcolm went by pretty smoothly and then you kind of get like a whole idea of what the day was like again i think that pretty smoothly i don't think that a child would think that way a teenager would think that way maybe start on day four with malcolm i don't know just to quicken the pace a bit so i thought that that could be improved. The dialogue didn't didn't sound like a teen. There was also a moment, and I highlighted it here towards the end, where he's talking about like it's the final stretch of summer, which we're actually living right now. So this is interesting. And they live in a small town, and he's saying, you know, I the protagonist, right? This is the first person is saying, like, I know it's the end of summer because the leaves change and because our small town becomes empty. These are like really vague not vague, but like really generic signs. Like in most towns in in North America, at least, yes, it does become a little emptier in the summer because people go someplace else. And yes, the leaves change. So again, I think it would you could lean into specificity and say that his favorite ice cream shop was open. I don't know, like something that's really specific to him and to his life, because it would also sh- show what he likes. Like, again, I have no idea what Jake likes. And then towards the end, I had a moment that didn't really fit with the character. Um, the, again, the only thing I know about Jake is that he succumbs to peer pressure. But then when his friends tease him and call him by the names of flowers, he says, I didn't care. I liked working outside. And the days went by fast. And there's another line where he says, the teasing didn't bother me. So I'm like, hmm, maybe it's intentional. Like, contradiction sometimes is intentional and can actually add layers to the character, but it should be intentional. Otherwise, it will just give your reader pause and your reader will think to themselves, wait, hold on. I thought this person was somebody who would care. So it's something to keep in mind. Awesome, Cece. Thank you. All right, Carly, let us know what you think of that query letter. All right. So the only thing that really stood out to me in terms of formatting was this is written in Arial and publishing normally in Times New Roman. So an itty bitty bitty thing, but the Serif versus Sans Serif font actually makes a difference in readability. So I would advise against uh, Arial. Just that's my take. Okay. And so in terms of anything else standing out to me structurally, um, 
the way that they wrote 70,000, they didn't even write words. They just wrote like 70,000 young adult fiction. Um, so they wrote the words set, like they wrote the numbers like seven zero and then thousand, like that just looked a little weird to me. So I would just like do it. So like seven zero 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 instead of writing the word thousand, that would be my take on that. I didn't know the book, um, the reluctant journal of Henry K. Larson, you know, it just wasn't a, wasn't a comp that jumped out at me at all. And obviously all American boys definitely know that one. So that was just like one of the two comps, but as, um, as you guys know, I don't do a lot of YA fiction, so not a category that I know a lot. I did appreciate the trigger warning. You know, I, I thought those were important. That's a lot of triggers. That's a lot of triggers. It's a lot, you know, racism, Islamophobia, violence, suicidal ideation, animal cruelty in 70,000 words, right? So we know this is going to be a really, really heavy, heavy book. And so uh, and then so coming to the actual concept of the book itself here. So I'm, I'm of a lot of minds about this. Like I, I read it and then I got to the bio and I'm like, okay, this person is a teacher. Like I understand, like I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around the like the male privilege part, uh, white privilege and all of that. And then the topics and the, the tensions, like it's just, a, it's a lot. So I, I do appreciate they're a teacher and obviously have worked with children and, um, you know, have an understanding of, of how teens speak and act and all of that sort of thing. Now, one, of the, one of the main issues with YA fiction is a lot of people just aren't around teens, right? Where it seems like this person is around children, which is very important. And so coming to the actual plot here. So the part that I'm having a hard time with is we are centering a white male voice and I don't know exactly how much we're going to get of Sumia, her point of view, her voice. And I'm a little bit concerned that she is coming off as more of a prop or a bit of a tokenization because like he is enacting an act of violence against her. Right. And that's uncomfortable, right? I'm having trouble putting it into words, right? Like it's really uncomfortable that we're going to witness this uncomfortable act of violence. And then what I also couldn't understand was this tutoring. Like, is she tutoring him or is he tutoring her? That's something I couldn't figure out. And so again, if he is tutoring her, this is like a white savior problem. So that's kind of what I, again, a lot of thoughts swimming in my head about this one that I can't quite put my thoughts together on, but there's a lot of uncomfortable feelings here. And if she's tutoring him, is she getting paid? Otherwise, free labor. I don't like it. So <laughs> the tutoring really needs to be clarified because I had the same questions. Yeah, yeah. There's a bit of a power imbalance here, which I'm trying to grapple with. So and the other thing that I'm a teeny bit concerned about is love, love all my teacher friends, love all you teachers out there. You do God's work, but teachers tend to want to teach, right? And in fiction, it's it's not about always having these teachable moments, right? It's about crafting a book that is an entertaining piece of art that teens want to read, right? We're not, even though a lot of white fiction is geared towards the library journal market, you know, and, and the librarians that read that and booksellers, but you know, you're also want to appeal to teens. And so I'm worried there's a little bit of like, white saviorism and teach too much teachable moments. Those are my main concerns here, but structurally, you know, there's a lot of drama. You, you got the drama. All right, Carly, why don't you let us know what you thought of the pages? I agree with, with what Cece said about the dialogue. I think that's a really important note. Teens really, in fiction, really like the reader of a teen, right? They really gravitate towards it sounding like them and sounding real. And so 
I was really hopeful with this teacher author that they really like could really capture this voice of um, the teen. But it was just like, hey, Malcolm, it's been a long time. Haven't seen you since grade eight grad. Right. Like they know that. that right. You're, you're performing this for the re- for the reader. And and uh, and that's can be a little bit uncomfortable because it's just not necessary. Other than that. Yeah, I, I agree with Cece. I felt like one of the things that I that I had an issue with was we're just kind of continuing to go back and recount things for the sake of the reader. Things like Carter, Brett, and I had been sitting in the park for hours. You know, we're just like going back and recounting things that that had already happened. So, so yeah, those are my main notes on that one. I agree with Cece. Awesome. Thanks, Colleen. Cece, why don't you read the second query letter for us? Let's do this. Dear Carly and Cecilia, it was the house. That was the refrain Aaliyah Brown's mentally ill mother repeated throughout her murder trial the murder she was acquitted for due to insanity. Over a decade and a very public meltdown later, Allie escapes with her husband and daughter back to her childhood home where that murder took place. There, she hopes to grieve in peace, but something won't let her. Bizarre hallucinations send Allie into a downward spiral. Her husband thinks she needs help. Allie's convinced that something else is at play. Something supernatural, sinister, and set on destroying her just like it destroyed her mother. Allie must prove her sanity isn't to blame before her husband hospitalizes her. At 80,000 words, The Worst Is Not is a women's psychological horror perfect for fans of intergenerational narratives examining motherhood, unreliable narrators like Julie in Rachel Harrison's The Return, and gothic-inspired haunted house stories like Jennifer McMahon's The Invited. The ideas came to me as I battled my own postpartum depression. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest in what I still believe to be a haunted house. I want to marry my love for all things spooky with compelling narratives that women find themselves in. Please find my first five pages below. Thank you for your time and consideration. Warm regards, Evelyn. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Okay, Carly, why don't you let us know what you thought of that query letter? This query letter is phenomenally done. I absolutely loved it. I thought they did such a good job, really, from the beginning. I mean... Somebody's mother went through a murder tri- murder trial and she was acquitted, like super fascinating, public meltdown. You know, there's also this intergenerational stuff. Uh, one of the things I was a little bit confused about was um, it says like Aaliyah Brown's mentally ill mother. And then it gets, it drops down in, in the next paragraph, she calls her Allie. And I was almost a bit confused. I was like, well, does the mother have the same name? Or like, who's Allie? Like, yes, uh, Allie can be short for Aaliyah. I don't know. I was just a little bit confused. Like, do we need to know the mother's name? Those were a little bit of some, like just little tiny confusing things um but yeah I I honestly thought um thought this was phenomenally well done the one thing I think I would just make a bit more clear is it seems like these mother and daughter lives are so parallel that I'm like is this going to be even be interesting like if we know that this is just we're reenacting a parallel life so I'm just a teeny bit confused on like what the drama is outside of that parallelism, because I don't want to read something that's just like a reenactment of something the reader already knows because it already happened. You know what I mean? Obviously, there's the horror element of it, the gothic element of it. So I would absolutely request this. Like the query has done its job. I also, we have an agent at our agency, Claire, who loves horror. And I actually already sent this over to her because I'm like, Claire would love this. So it's already over in our Slack because I feel like she would love this. Yeah, I, I really, I liked the, I liked the psychological horror bit, intergenerational narratives, motherhood, unreliable narrators. 
And I also had postpartum depression. So I like understand all of the, the mental battles with that. And congratulations for like writing through it and coming up with something really um, positive and creative uh, through that experience. Wonderful, Colleen. Thank you. Cece, what was your take on it? I wanted more, more clarity on the plot. I think that she should follow Carly's book hook cook method and start with the paragraph with the, you know, 80,000 words, the worst is not, et cetera, um, just to set the scene a little bit more that it's gothic horror. And then when it comes to the plot paragraphs, like whose murder was it? Is that relevant? And like the next paragraph, like she, Ali escapes, escapes what? Like it's a decade later. Like, and at, at first I thought she escaped because she was a child when it happened and then she became 18. So she was able to escape, but no, because she has a husband and daughter. So she can't be like 18. Yes, technically she could, but that's not realistic. And like hopes to grieve in peace a decade later, like who is she grieving? I mean, clearly her mom killed someone important to her. Otherwise she wouldn't be grieving. I had a lot of questions. And honestly, one of my biggest questions, and this is so ridiculous, this just shows my mind, was like, how would her husband be able to hospitalize her? This isn't the 1950s, right? Like, like how does he have power? Because she would have to be doing something actually like legally wrong for him to have power to hospitalize her. Otherwise, she would have to check herself in. Um, so yeah, I had a lot of questions. I, I would keep on reading because I love the genre, but but I think that the plot could could use some a bit more clarity. Cece, thank you. Carly, what did you think of those opening pages? Mm-hmm. So just to set the scene for everybody, we start in the woods. The opening line is, among the woods of Odell, the warmth of summer's arid sun had lingered for all of September and on the 5th evening of October evaporated overnight. So we're getting into this like kind of like gothic horror tones of like really setting the scene and like the fog and the seasons changing in Oregon, that sort of thing. And then this is kind of where I start to get a little bit confused in terms of who are we paying attention to? Because it starts like there's a woman's voice and there's like some she language. So I don't know if this is Allie. And then I'm reading like, oh, okay, I assume this is the mom. So it's not, I don't know. I agree with Cece kind of throughout the whole thing. I think the author's probably trying to be as vague as possible for the sake of like, there's a big reveal, like big things are happening. But I'm confused. I'm I'm quite confused about this. And basically, we witness a woman cleaning up after a murder scene. We see a woman, we see an axe, or we we are told we see an axe that has hair attached to it. And there's some blood and there's some cleaning happening. And so, you know, it's a pretty dramatic moment. And then the next chapter, now we realize, oh, it's Aaliyah Brown, right? And so we can kind of connect the dots. That one is the mom. The earlier one was the mom. And yeah, and so the next scene is just the mom, Allie, and her daughter in the car, Um, And I really liked this scene on the phone. I love this multitasking. It's like she's driving her daughter around. There's a lot on her mind. Clearly somebody calls and needs her. And this scene is her explaining to a journalist her opinion on something because she's running for office, um, Portland's next city commissioner. So I, I, re- I thought that was a really well done scene. And then this ends with this this chapter, end, very short chapters. This chapter ends with the daughter saying, I thought you didn't like your Omi. And then the mom says, it's complicated, baby. And I just thought that was a really great precursor for what's to come. And then we jump to back in the past, we're assuming, but this is one of the only dates that we see. Chapter three starts with 2001. We're back in the emergency room of the health and science university going back and forth so it's just a lot of back and forth a lot of confusing plot points and a lot of confusing timelines great thanks Carly Cece would you like to weigh in there did you agree with Carly what was your take 100% agree with everything Carly said makes total sense to me yeah she's echoing my notes essentially I would as a golden rule of the podcast I would say start with character right like you want to get to character fast people connect with other people so we get 
like, I think it's a full page of descriptions, which are really beautifully written. And I appreciate it. And I get that it's, you know, there's a mystery going on. Like, who's, whose body is it? Like, why is she, why did she kill this person? But I do think that it's important to get to character. I want to get into someone's head right away. Second thing is, and again, to echo Carly's comments, we need timestamps on this. Yes, chapter three does start with a date, but it's a date in the paragraph. And so timestamps, right? Like, this is why Carly and I talk about how great they are all the time. Like if you just put date and place at the beginning of every chapter, especially in a chapter where we're moving in time, you just remove this huge burden for the reader. And it's so appreciated and not just over caffeinated agents, readers, regular readers like it too. So yeah, I would revise that in that sense. And I would also, um, when Allie's on the phone, because I also really liked that scene, I wanted to, to, to have more, a bigger sense of her emotion when she's talking to this reporter person. So she's speaking over him. She's interrupting him and she's putting her foot down and standing up for herself and, and being great at her job. And I loved seeing that. And I also wanted as an extra layer, a little bit on her emotion, a little bit on her headspace, because, because I just think that it would add even more value to this. I I wanted to see inside her head. It's what I always say. Like the thing about books is that you get to be inside someone's head. So yeah, I, I I love this. This is really good. I think that the author did a great job. I think that with these edits, this will be even stronger. Wonderful. Thanks, Cece. Right. I'm going to read the third query letter. Here we go. Bianca, Carly, and Cecilia. I've been following the Shit No One Tells You About Writing podcast for several months, and I appreciate the wealth of information you all share about the craft of writing and the publishing industry. I'm submitting my query letter for my suspense novel, Beneath the Hidden Pines, for consideration for your Books with Hook segment. Set in the early 2000s, Beneath the Hidden Pines follows the intertwining stories of three protagonists struggling to overcome guilt and find redemption after separate tragedies for which they feel responsible. College student Scarlett is unmoored as the grandfather who raised her succumbs to Alzheimer's. She thought she found the family she craved when she met her boyfriend Adam and bonded with his young son Ethan. But when Ethan disappears in Minnesota's Chippewa National Forest on her watch, she slips into a spiral of guilt and despair. She flees to a resort town in Wisconsin and finds solace with Nate, who also has experienced trauma and loss, but may have a malevolent side. Meanwhile, Jack, a young carnival ride operator, enjoys the nomadic nature of his job until a horrific accident on his ride sends him reeling with shock as he questions the role of his actions. He awaits the outcome of the investigation in Oklahoma City and meets Olivia, whose forthright nature is startling and refreshing. As they grow closer, he wants to reveal his tragic secret to her, but he tangles with drug dealers who could threaten their relationship and their lives. The third protagonist is Rill, who in her 70s has found peace in an unconventional life as an off-the-grid forager after her own devastating loss years ago. She goes into the woods one evening searching for mushrooms and berries and stumbles upon a child, apparently abandoned. He resembles her son who died years ago and she becomes convinced fate has brought him to her. She takes him away from the forest in a decision with far-reaching consequences. I've included the first five pages below. The manuscript is complete at 100,000 words. 
Similar novels in tone include The Distant Deed, Disappearing Earth, as well as Long Bright River. I have a background in journalism, and I believe that influences my writing style in that I aim to connect with the reader in an approachable manner. I'm drawn to propulsive storylines, and my goal with the story was to explore a redemptive, uh, it says redemptive arch, so just correct that, it should be redemptive arc, in a compelling manner. Thank you for your consideration, best redacted. All right. Okay, Carly, why don't you tell us what you thought of that query letter? This query letter is very interesting to me because as an agent, I consider these queries kind of like hidden gems because I love multi-POV, but it also really made me smile because I taught my query, I just taught my query 101 workshop, and this is a textbook case of multi-POV pitch in a way that makes everybody feel more distant than it does bring them together. And I believe that multi-POV books should always be pitched in a way that explains to us how these storylines are coming together instead of how they're being pushed apart. So this is kind of a textbook, a textbook case of that that we're, we're pitched something vague, you know, in terms of like overcoming guilt, finding redemption after separate tragedies for which they feel responsible. But I want to know what is this, what about this comes together, right? And we're, if this isn't a way, this isn't something that explains to us how they interact. It's explaining to us how they are all separate. So that's a big rework for me. I really need to know the emotionality and, and all of those internal feelings of what exactly is going to bring these together. So you need like one hook line that explains what this book is about, right? We still don't know what this book is about. We know we're meeting three different characters and they're going through three different life journeys, but why are these, why are these not three separate books? Why is this one book? Like these are the things I don't understand, but I consider this a hidden gem because I love books like this. And if I request the manuscript and it's a huge emotional payoff. I will be one of the only agents maybe that that you know offers rep because this person isn't accurately explaining what this book is about. But I love requesting projects like this because again, I know that there could be this emotional payoff there, but this isn't in the benefit of the author who should want as many offers as possible, right? This is the benefit of me who thinks like, "Oh, there's some gems in here," right? So I don't want to seem like I'm being reductive or anything like that. I know this this can be a gem, not a hidden gem, but to me, I consider it something where it's like I got to mine a little bit to kind of figure out exactly um, what's going on here. Another comp you're probably going to want to use, my author, Glendy Vandera, writes in this space a lot. She um, published a book earlier this year called The Light Through the Leaves. And the opening scene is a mom in the woods and she's like packing up her kids after, after a big hike. And she has like two rambunctious twins and she's like trying to get the twins in the car and she has an infant, like she needs to clip into the car seat. And she was so worried about the toddlers that she didn't clip the baby into the car seat. And then she drives away and then she comes back 10 minutes later and the baby's gone. So I think that would be a really good comp for you, The Light Through the Leaves uh, by Glendy Vanderoff. Um, she's my author, I'm a little biased, but it has a lot of those themes of nature that we get to in these opening pages. So yeah, those are my big notes. Just on that. So maybe they know that novel, but didn't want to use it with you because we have said before on the podcast that if a writer includes an author that you as the agent represents, one, it could sound a bit sucky uppy. And two, you could be like, well, I already represent this kind of book. Why do I need to, to do it? So had she included that for you on the query, would that have worked for you in this instance? It definitely would have worked for me because Glendie is a huge success. She's almost sold a million copies 
of her books. So, you know, if you're somebody who, you know, you can sell a million copies of your books, bravo. I definitely want you on my roster, especially if you're as talented as Glendy. So that would be my example there. I, I know what you mean. It can sound sucky-uppy, but I, Long Bright River is also a really great comp. I've read that one. I actually haven't read Disappearing Earth. I had that on my library hold list um, and it passed me. So I haven't read that one. So, you know, only of these three comps, I've actually only read one of these comps. So, you know, that, that's kind of my take on that. Your library hold list is anything like mine. It's just plain circling overhead for years on end. Okay, Cece, what were your thoughts on that? So when, when we started this query letter, we read intertwining stories, right? And I was like, yes, I put a little heart next to that because I love intertwining stories. And then we heard about, you know, what this book was about as a whole, about uh, protagonists struggling to overcome guilt and find redemptions after separate tragedies. That word separate is already not good, right? Like to show intertwining stories. But also you're focusing on the emotion. Another one of the golden rules in query letters, focus on plot, not feelings. And then that is actually a trend that is repeated over the next paragraphs. With Scarlet, we hear that she's unmoored and slips into a spiral of guilt and depression. And yes, there is a plot point about her finding Nate, but I don't get like she flees to a resort town. Like does, does her boyfriend leave her? Does she leave him? Like with Jack, like reeling with shock, questions the roles of his action. And again, there is a little plot point about the, the you know, getting tangled with a drug dealer who could threaten their relationship. But there's so much focus on emotions with, with the third protagonist as well, although that has a little bit more plot. But my big note is I want to know how their stories come together. And that is a tall order. I empathize, but it is non-negotiable because otherwise Carly is right. You're probably not going to get many offers and you want to get many offers. And this seems like there's so much potential, right? Because as agents, we want to connect to the emotion in a story. Number one thing any reader wants is to feel something when they read it. But typically we feel things when we read about story and plot, not when we read about the, the literal emotion on the create letter. And just some advice I want to give the author here and to all authors who are writing multi-POVs. I taught that class this week, dual timelines and multi-POVs. And uh, the advice I gave then that I'd like to give you as well is I write these kinds of intertwining stories. And whenever they go out to editors, I always get told that the convergence of the storylines has to happen sooner, as soon as you can possibly make it. So this has always been the feedback I've gotten and I've had to rewrite my novels based on that feedback. So, so keep that in mind as well. So if you're not telling the agent where the convergence is because it's so late in the novel that it would be a spoiler, I'm concerned that your convergence is coming too late. Okay, Carly, what did you think of those opening pages? So we open with the character Scarlet. This is the first character that is introduced in the query letter. So pretty straightforward in terms of, you know, our expectations are being met pretty early on. So I had a couple issues with our first paragraph. Okay, so we start with what would reverberate through Scarlet's mind later, beside the obvious, most devastating thing, was the way the wind had roared, like a gathering of spirits through the treetops above them that September weekend. So right away, I'm like, what is this obvious, most devastating thing? And then I'm kind of, to be honest with you, just skimming until we get to the devastating thing, right? I'm honestly not reading because I'm just like, scroll, scroll, scroll. Like you kind of got me on the hook here and I'm a little bit impatient. I'm an agent that reads for plot uh, because I work on more commercial, not market fiction. I don't work on a lot of literary fiction. So if you're going to pitch something and tell me, you know, it's a market or it's commercial, you know, I, I want to know what happens in this book. That's very important to me. So if you're telling me something is 
obvious and devastating. It almost kind of sounds like you're talking down to the reader because it's like, oh, this is obvious, you know? And it's like, well, is it obvious? I don't know. You didn't tell me. And then like, I don't know. I felt a little bit uncomfortable with that, about that opening. So I would just get to this big inciting incident quicker. And so for the listeners, the big inciting incident is this couple, they had this wonderful camping weekend and cottage weekend um, and they're packing up and all of a sudden the toddler takes off and they have to call the police and bring everybody in and, and you know, try to figure out what happened to this boy. And that's why I introduced the comp as well of Glendy Vandera because this would be a perfect, this scene is a perfect comp for that. So there's a lot of tension as Cece's going to probably get into, right? There's the tension of this couple, like who was watching the kid, right? Like that's the biggest thing. Parents always like, are you watching them or am I watching? Like who has eyes on the kid? And when you're packing up a car, like, you know, a lot of times that's when you're, you're not focused, right? So I thought that tension was great. Obviously there's the loss of this child. The only thing that makes me wonder if this book begins at the right place is this. We do not know these characters yet. We do not, we don't have an invested moment in this boy yet. Obviously a child going missing is devastating. It doesn't matter that we don't emotionally know this child yet, but if we have an emotional connection, it would make this scene even more devastating. And the other thing is you, I don't know if you need a trigger warning. It's kind of a like, you know, we know through the query letter that there's a lot of drama going on, but I don't think it says in the query letter necessarily that this child goes missing. So that, I don't know, like there's a, I've talked about before on the podcast, like Publishing is a lot of women and inherently being a woman means there's a lot of women that are also moms. And so this like child missing stuff can be a little bit sensitive for some women. So you might, might need a content warning. Might. I just, I just throw that out there. So it's a, it's a very dramatic scene. Uh, like I am, like I, I was really gripped, but I, but I'm not sure we started in the right place. Well, thanks Carly. Cece, what are your thoughts on that? Interesting what Carly said about not starting in the right place. I think that might be really good advice to, to pick a scene where we're invested in Ethan first, Ethan's little boy that goes missing. Here, I was reading this and I feel things before I think them as always. And I was feeling removed. And it's strange because it's a child that goes missing. Like I... I, whenever I babysit any of my, 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 my friend's children, I'm like the biggest helicopter auntie. I'm, I'm terrified of them even scraping their knee. And then it occurred to me as I was reading this that the reason why I felt a little removed is because she feels removed, Scarlett. And I have examples. So she calls, uh, Adam calls 911. I know someone calls 911 and you know people stop by to help, right? Like authorities. One, she is not scanning her boyfriend's face or futurizing, catastrophizing anything with regards to her relationship with her boyfriend in terms of like, he's going to blame me. What is he going to think of me? Or even something like, how could I do this to him? He never blames me. I don't know. I don't know. Right. Like, I don't know anything about like, does she spend a lot of time with Ethan? Because there is a mention of an ex-wife and how they had to convince the ex-wife Miranda to let Ethan come on the trip with them. So Yes, she may be solely focused on Ethan, but I don't believe that there wouldn't be at least a little bit of, oh my God, my boyfriend's going to want to murder me. <laughs> like, like, like the guilt, the, the, I think that a little bit on that would make sense unless it's intentional that it's not there, which is just weird. And then the second and most important thing actually is this. When the deputy is there, Deputy Marks, he mentions at one point there, we also have a canine unit. They're in the Twin Cities, but they can be here by early morning if we need them. This is where she should be freaking out. Early morning? Are you kidding me? No, not early morning. He's going to be found in two minutes. 
because I'm, I'm desperate, right? Like she says she's desperate. Um, she uses the word desperation to describe her feelings. And yet there's a line like that. I felt relief at the sight of these strangers who had dropped everything to help them look for Ethan. Let me tell you something. When you are desperate, you do not feel relief. You feel frustration at the incompetence of everyone. You could have Iron Man looking for your children. You could have Superman. They are still incompetent beings. Why? Because they have not found your child. You don't have patience when you are desperate. Desperation does not give you perspective for relief, does not give you patience. It's she needs to be more immersed in this, I think. Plus, I don't see any reaction from Adam. Like, does she love this man, right? Like, she's she's probably convinced he'll never forgive her. I don't know. And also, there is a minor, minor, minor note, because this is really the, the big one. Oh, also guilt. She's not feeling super guilty, right? Like, towards the end, there's like, she pictured Ethan alone um, because of her inattention. That's like a semblance of guilt. More guilt, please, unless she hasn't gotten to guilt because she's so really in the desperation. That's okay, but then we need more desperation. I was just going to add to that. There's also, I think that there's a lot more to mine here in terms of her feeling like she's let the real mother down, right? Because she is the the stepmom, the girlfriend mom, right? And like, there's inherently usually a lot of tension between the mom and the new girlfriend. And like, and she's going to feel the wrath of this mom when this mom's plane leaves, or sorry, but this mom's plane lands because the mom, they say, oh, where's the mom, right? She's she's up in the air. We can't get a hold of her. When this plane lands and you get a voicemail from police and um, you're the father of your child saying your child's missing, like there is going to be wrath and the hell to pay, right? Like, yeah, I, I think there's a lot to mind there between like, what is the relationship between Scarlett and the biological mother, I think there's there should be a lot more tension there too. And great job picking this kind of situation because anything that's like exes, new family, blended family, girlfriends, mom, biological mom, stepmom, always so much drama. And the reader projects, right? Like even if you don't come from a blended family, you still watch movies and read books. So you project and that's great. I do think that you can unfold this in a way that's more strategic. So for example, um, right in the beginning, Ethan looked like Adam when he smiled, but Scarlett could also see Ethan's mother, Miranda, Adam's ex-wife and his serious expressions. So if you split that into two sentences, you might, the second part, you might get more of an effect. So for example, uh, she could add emotion. She could say that it was an uncomfortable thing, like seeing his, seeing Miranda in his in his expression. Or maybe it wasn't uncomfortable. Maybe it made her, made her like Miranda because she loves, loves Ethan so much. Like when the deputy arrives and says, you're the mom. And she goes, no, I'm the girlfriend. Like there should be a reaction in that deputy's face. Even if this deputy is a lovely, lovely human, people still go, oh, you're the girlfriend and you lost the child. Like, and also I kept thinking to myself, would it be better? And I don't know enough about the book, but this is just an idea. If Ethan were the kind of toddler who played hiding games, like he did this all the time. I wonder if that would add something to the story or not, because she, all we get from him is that he was like playing with Legos or something. And then he disappeared. Uh, like she could hear him at a certain moment, like in toddler speak. So what if he were the kind of toddler who like liked to hide and maybe the dad told him not to do it. Maybe she said, it's okay. It's just a game. I don't know. Like maybe that could add another layer to this, which actually brings brings me to another emotionality note. When we go through these moments, we typically get stuck in reliving the last moment, like the last time you saw someone or the last time you heard someone. And that usually leads you even deeper into a sinkhole of, like I said that before, desperation. So, so yeah, I think up the emotionality here for sure. And, and try to lean into the potential because there's a lot of potential. Thanks, Cece and Connie. Right. And now we're moving on to today's guest. 
we just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Today's guest is the author of Behind the Red Door and The Winter Sister. She is the managing editor of Three Elements Review and taught creative writing for many years at both the high school and college level. She lives in Connecticut where she obsesses over dogs, true crime, miniatures and cake. It's my pleasure to welcome Megan Collins. Megan, welcome to the show. It's so lovely to get to speak to you. Congratulations on the launch of The Family Plot. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. Yeah, I'm sure you must be exhausted by now because that week after launch is always 
hectic. And I know that, you know, during COVID trying to, you know, advertise your book and trying to talk it up and everything, it's all online, which means you could do it from 6am to 10pm at night. Is that how it's been? I mean, it's definitely been a lot, um, but I'm grateful for all the opportunities that I've had to try to reach different readers and talk to different authors. So it's, it's been, it's definitely been a lot, but it's been a lot of fun too. Yeah. It seems to take forever until it happens and then it happens. And then it's like crazy, crazy. And then it's like over so quickly. And it's just like, oh, that was yeah. that. <laughs> and then the world moves on. You're like, but wait, I still have this book. Yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> true. So for all the listeners out there, you know, you, you build up and build up to launch day and then you have launch day and it's great if your book's being covered by magazines and bloggers and in articles and things like that. And it feels wonderful. And then next Tuesday, there's another book out and suddenly everybody's talking about that book, you know, so you do feel like a, sometimes a bit anti climactic, you know, mm-hmm. but, um, but yeah, while it lasts, it's amazing. You're like yes. qu- queen for a week. So that's <laughs> yeah. great. We, we're going to begin Megan with a lightning round of questions. I ask you like one thing or the next, you can elaborate or not. We can go as fast as you want. After which we will chat a bit more about the family plot and some questions about elements of craft that I'd okay. like to cover. So here we go. Are you a plotter or a pencer? hundred percent plotter. I need to know where I'm going or else I can't go anywhere. <laughs> yeah. That makes sense in your genre. Totally mm-hmm. makes sense. Do you write on computer or in longhand in notebooks? Um, I definitely write on computer because I do a lot of editing as I go. And so while I'm writing one sentence, I'll go back and tinker with another or go back to a previous paragraph. So it would just be too messy and overwhelming if I was doing it by hand. Yeah. And that leads to a question that was not on the list, but do you have a favorite writing software that you use? Do you work on Word or do you work on something like Scrivener? Yeah, I just work on plain old, old fashioned Word. I know that a lot of people swear by Scrivener, but it, it, it seems very over overwhelming to me anytime I've sort of looked at it, but maybe someday I'll be brave and I'll wade into those waters. <laughs> yeah. You and I could do a zoom and I'll give you a crash course on the easiest ways how, how to use it. Cause the three day sort of sitting down tutorial is always a bit overwhelming, mm-hmm. but I am also a tinkerer. So Scrivener makes the tinkering so much, so much easier than, okay. than word does. So yeah. Okay. Do you like writing more in private or in public? And we are now assuming that we are not in COVID days. Yeah, <laughs> um, definitely private. I need like complete quiet when I'm writing. Otherwise things would infiltrate or distract me. And I know some, a lot of writers can write to music, but I can't even do that. So I just need to be in my home office, quiet, contained, and then I'm good to go. Well, that answered the next question about whether you write to music or in silence. <laughs> do you share your work while drafting or do you wait until the very in to share it with other people? Now that I'm sort of on contract for books, I wait till the end, but I used to, my husband was usually my first reader, but now I'm kind of going faster than he can keep up because I'm on a deadline now. But yeah, I would, I'd read a chapter and then I would show it to my husband and he would give me feedback. But now I pretty much wait until I have everything and then I do still show it to him. But then of course it goes to my editor, my agent and all that. Is he also a writer or is he just a very astute reader? He was a reporter at a newspaper for a while. So he knows how to string together sentences for sure. And 
and he always says he's not an astute reader, but like, there's a reason why I keep <laughs> giving it to him for feedback. I think he really is. He's great. Yeah. That's what I was asking. Cause my husband reads all my stuff as well, but he just says, everything's great. And so <laughs> it's great for your confidence, but it's not really yeah. good for the book, you know? <laughs> right. So yeah. What's your favorite point of view first or third person? I've mostly done first person. So I think that because that's what I generally lean toward, but the book I'm writing now is third person. So it's been a little bit of a challenge to get into to that little bit of separation, but still keeping it very close in the character's head. Okay, I'm stopping the lightning round because now I have a question based on that. So what was the reason that the book you're writing now had to be done in third person as opposed to first, if that's the, you know, your natural inclination? Um, It's actually because I have two main characters instead of one protagonist. And I wanted the, the thing about the book is at the very beginning, they're very, very close. And then something happens in the book that starts to send them under different directions. So I wanted to be able to be in their heads or access their thoughts at the same time in the same scene without having to have like one chapter is one person's perspective, the next is the others, because I wanted to emphasize how close they are that, you know, you're you're with them both, they're kind of both the stars at the same time. And then as the book goes along, and you see their separation more and the fact that they're in different scenes instead of always together. So that's why I chose third person. And was that like an, a third person omniscient? to get both of their thoughts at the same time? Yeah, omniscient, but only for them. So they're the only two characters whose heads I can get inside. Okay, yeah, that's interesting one for our listeners because we get a lot of point of view questions, you know, and people tend to think if you're writing omniscient, then it's omniscient for everybody who's in the room. So you're doing like a limited omniscient. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I can't wait to see how that plays out. I haven't seen that done often. Yeah, I think there's a reason because it's really hard. And every day I'm like, why is writing this book so much harder than any other book? And I'm like, oh, I'm doing a completely new point of view that I've never done before. I'm kind of exploring a new kind of relationship I've never done before. So there's all these things. But yeah, the point of view is tricky, but hopefully it'll work out. (laughs) Have, Have you seen anybody else do it that you've like looked at it and gone, oh, they did it well? Or is it you you've really got no template from which to dive off of (laughs) I think I've seen it maybe not with just two characters but with maybe three or four but I just really felt that this was what was right for this story and it was kind of my gut instinct for it and my agent and my editor nobody's told me no yet for it so I'm gonna keep going with it (laughs) I love that you said that because people seem to think as writers we just get to make up whatever we want and do whatever we want and it's like yeah we do but that doesn't mean our publisher is gonna want what we've done so we do we do have to keep asking for you know not necessarily permission but like is this working for you is this something you're prepared to publish yeah when I when we sent when my agent and I sent the proposal to my publisher it had these opening chapters with that kind of third person voice with getting in these two heads and I was really expecting my editor to come back and say like mm, this this isn't working but she she hasn't said that yet so I'm still <laughs> Megan's, I'm still going Megan's editor if you're listening <laughs> don't say it's a problem <laughs> right okay so do you prefer present or past tense present tense and my first novel was past tense which felt right for that book but ever since then I've done present tense and I don't know I just really love the immediacy of it and also there's in most of my books the past plays such a big role in the present of the characters so I love that when you're writing in present tense you can easily differentiate 
differentiate between memories in the past because it's a completely different different tense. Whereas when you're in past tense already, you have to have all these like other little markers for that. So and despite that, you start getting into the awkward of had hads and had yes, beans, exactly. etc. Whereas <laughs> simple past is so much easier. Yes. Yeah. Prologues are awesome or prologues are cheating? That's a great question. My agent really does not like prologues. So I feel like I'm kind of biased now to say the same thing. I think that they can work. But the thing I don't like with prologues is when you take a chunk from the story that happens later and you just throw it as the prologue. And the reason why I don't really like that is because um, we have no context for like, usually it's this high stakes scene, but we have no context for it. We don't know the characters at all. So while it might interest us, then it's kind of jarring to then in the first chapter, like start in a much more subdued moment. And you're like, okay, well, how do, how do we, how do we get to that other thing? So those always feel a little awkward to me, but sometimes like a genuine prologue, maybe something that happens months or years before the main setting of the book. I think that those can definitely work. Yeah. We have two agents on the podcast, Carly and Cece, who review query letters and opening pages and give critique before people go out on submission. And they often have a problem with the action prologue for that exact Mm -hmm. reason, because yes, the scenario is interesting and there's a lot happening, but we're not invested yet. So yeah, hundred percent. So for all of those who keep yelling at us about our stance on prologues, Megan agrees. Right. There we go. Uh, Do you prefer drafting or revising? Revising. And this is something that I've only learned about myself in the last couple books that I've worked on because drafting, you know, even, even when I have an outline or a plan, like it's so hard to just like get those initial words and emotions onto the page, but then revising, I love being able to refine them and feeling like you have already a foundation that maybe you'll crumble to little bits, but uh, there's still something there. There's some sort of scaffolding. I, I really love that. Yeah. And even when you crumble it to bits, it's because you know, it's not working. Right. Right. You have a new plan and you're going to execute that. Yeah. Right. Right. And the new plan's better than the old plan because, you know, you know that the one thing didn't work and now you're going to try something, something else. Are you a fan of adverbs and adjectives or do you try and cut them all out? I definitely don't have a rule. Like I know some people do, like you can only have this many adjectives or adverbs. I feel like if, if they're helping, if they work, go for it. I mean, adjectives and adverbs do a lot of work and we need them. We wouldn't know without adjectives. We wouldn't know what anything was like. It would just, everything would just be a thing with no qualifier. So, so I, yeah, I, I don't really think about rules like that. I just go with what feels right and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. And it's also different for every writer because, you know, you're also a creative writing instructor. And so when I teach creative writing, I will look and the student will have used like a very blah verb, like go or move. Mm-hmm. And then they use three adjectives. And then you're like, no, if you picked a stronger word, you wouldn't need that. But at the same right. time, I've just finished reading Great Circle by Maggie Shipstead. Mm. And, uh, you know, she uses so many adjectives and adverbs that it almost borders on purple prose. But at mm. the same time, it's so much her style and it's just so lush and evocative. It's just amazing. And if you took out all of hers, the writing just wouldn't be the same. So 
So it depends on the writer and it depends on what they're working on. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to be able to know your own voice well enough to feel confident that if you do have a lot of adjectives, like there's a reason you're doing it. You're not just throwing in everything to increase your word count. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent on that. So it is that pushing back and saying, this is my style and it really works for me, you know? So do you love or hate the copy editing process? It was a little more involved with my first novel. And, but ever since then, it's been pretty strange straightforward and just, and I will learn like, oh, I apparently put hyphens where they are not needed and I miss putting them in when they are needed. So I learned these little ticks that I didn't know that I had, but so far it hasn't been too painful for me. Yeah. I find writers fall into two categories. They're either like saying I'm going through the copy editing process and they've got their anti-anxiety meds and a ton of wine and they're sitting there muttering darkly or they're like, oh, this is great. I absolutely love it. <laughs> what comes to you first, character or plot? Um, usually the plot, the, well, at least a premise comes to me. And then from there, I think of what characters um, would be most interesting to see this happen to or would be best served by this happening to them. And then from there, I I join those two together in making the plot. Wonderful. And we'll come back to this shortly when we start discussing the the book. What do you prefer, a three-act structure or using more action beats like in something like Save the Cat? I definitely lean more towards Save the Cat as a as my plot scaffolding. And then in what I'm writing now, I was thinking more in terms of a four-act structure, but it's still it still has those same things like the midpoint and kind of yeah, the same save the cat sort of thing. But I just I think every book every story tells you what it needs. And yes, like you'll have these tools, like those different plotting structures, but every book kind of dictates where the story is going to go. And so I try not to be too beholden to those things. Yeah, hundred percent. And and I find that the more you write, the more those things will come to you instinctively as yeah. a writer, because you'll get to a certain point and you'll be like, uh-oh, we, we, I'm going to need something here to mm-hmm. carry it through. And whether it's a false victory or a false defeat or whatever, we kind of come to that instinctively but I feel like emerging writers do best to kind of start planning their books looking at that kind of structure yeah it's definitely important to to know what those beats are and what they're doing and how they're serving character and how they're pushing the story forward because then you're right then it becomes more instinctual as you go along yeah what do you prefer writing dialogue or description dialogue is quicker to write. So in that way, it's my favorite, but description, I think is my favorite. My background's actually in poetry. So anytime I get to like, just play with the language and try to make beautiful phrases or whatever, like that's really when I get the joy from it. And that's unusual in the genre that you're writing. I mean, you're doing what psychological thrillers, you know, and they were without you having told me that you did poetry, I would have guessed that based on the descriptions you used throughout. And it was, was not long descriptions, very, very short mm-hmm. descriptions, but like just really amazing, like the kind of thing you want to to highlight. So that Thank definitely you. definitely came through. And for those of you out there who like writing poetry, there's nothing to say. You can't bring that style into any genre. You know, right, exactly. it doesn't just have to be one. And then last question was, question is, are you a fan of backstory? Do you avoid it at all costs? You touched on this earlier. So instead of asking that, I'm going to say, do you have a rule when it comes to backstory? Like no backstory within the first chapter or the first two or three chapters? Or again, does it depend on the kind of book and the kind of story? It definitely 
depends on the kind of story for me. I try not to, I try to keep the first couple of chapters definitely not bogged down by backstory because then there's no reason to jump into the actual moment with these characters and become invested in them. But also, you know, a lot of times you need to know certain things right up front. But yeah, I try to keep those as, as contained as possible and then delve deeper into them, maybe chapter three and on. Okay. And we were talking about how the premise comes to you first. So the premise of the family plot was really, really unique, really interesting. Could you tell our listeners what that premise is and what inspired it? Yeah, so the family plot, sort of the elevator pitch is, it's about a true crime obsessed family who gather to bury their patriarch only to discover the remains of their long missing brother already in his grave when they open it up. And the that premise came to me, it actually all came from the title of the family plot, which I was working on something completely different and I couldn't figure out a title and my husband threw out the family plot as a as a like a suggestion because I said oh, I need something that points to the family aspect and the family plot did not work with the thing I was working with but I could not get it out of my head it just like would rattle around I loved you know a family plot you have a cemetery dead bodies which is all great fodder for thriller writers and then I loved the double meaning of the word plot scheming and secrets and also the grave itself so I just kind of like let that spin around in my head and then and then this idea just just sprung forward of um, a family burying one member only to discover that another member was already in that grave who they didn't even know had been killed or was dead. And so from there, like I said, I try to think about what family would be most interesting to put in this. And I eventually came to this idea of a family obsessed with true crime and who'd grown up sort of on these stories of murder. And now they have a murder story in their own family, in their own backyard. And how are they going to react to that? And also you're a fan of true crime, aren't you? Yes, definitely. (laughs) Yes. I think listening to, do you listen to the true crime podcast or do you read the books? Like how do you sort of consume your true crime? Yeah, definitely podcast, My Favorite Murder, In the Dark. And I love I'll Be Gone in the Dark, Michelle McNamara's book about the Golden State Killer, all the documentaries and docuseries and all of that. Yes, I I mean, I definitely saturate myself with that. And I think more and more now as a culture, we're doing that because there's so much more, there are so much available to us right now in all the different formats and mediums. So um, that was definitely something I wanted to explore with the book is why are are we so drawn to true crime? Why am I so drawn to it? What do we get from it? What is what does it offer us and how can it maybe hurt us also? So that's all stuff I wanted to bring into the story. Yeah. So I love how your interests as well kind of inform, you know, your work, because I think a lot of our listeners listen to all kinds of podcasts. I've got all kinds of interests, whether it's photography, whether it's true crime, whether it's making clothes, you know, whatever yeah. the case may be is. And, and any of those could, uh, you know, inspire you to come up with it with a premise for something. Mm-hmm, definitely. So a question I have in terms of the point of view, why did you choose one particular character as the point of view character in this novel, as opposed to having sort of two or three or even an ensemble cast, because it's a very interesting family. They all kind of guarding secrets, you know, they're all kind of cagey, et cetera, et cetera. So could you tell us like the process of deciding on, on the first person point of view to just the one sister in this novel? Yeah. So um, I chose Dahlia, who's the main character, the narrator, as the main point of view, the only point of view, because she is the one who... 
whose world is kind of ripped apart the most by this revelation of their brother having been murdered because he was her twin brother. And she's been searching for him. They thought he ran away 10 years ago. And she's been searching for him ever since sort of exhaustively. And now her entire world is upended by knowing he has been dead this whole time, but he was also murdered. And so her emotional journey is really the biggest one in the book. But also there's going to be outside speculation that her family who this this island, they live on an island, this island of people has never trusted, has always thought is basically like the freaks of the island. They're suspicious of them. She starts to wonder certain things about her family. So I wanted to have just one point of view and just her point of view to really keep that sense of distance between what she knows and what could be happening and what secrets there are to unravel. And and yeah, and I don't know, her voice was just the one that came to me most strongly. And it, it was it was just kind of, again, it's that gut feeling you get for every project. There's sort of something calling you to do a certain point of view or a certain voice or structure or whatever it is. And this one, I was just hearing her voice and I knew she was kind of my view through this whole world. Wonderful. Yeah. So, so this is, you know, a discussion we often have, like, how do you decide which point of view is the best? And, you know, we'll say who's got the highest stakes, who's most invested, who's got the biggest emotional attachment to something. So these are all things that we think about when we come up with our point of view characters. So one last question before I let you go, Megan, is um, in terms of your secondary characters. So Dahlia's friend, who's also a true crime uh, in enthusiast, etc. Was she always going to be in the novel? Was she, did she come in later? You know, because we often have our listeners struggle with secondary characters. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I try and ask authors, what purpose did you want that particular secondary character to fulfill so that listeners can say, oh, okay, these are when I choose my secondary characters because I need them for the following. So what was your specific reason for including her? Yeah, it's so funny that you pinpoint her because she is a character who was completely constructed for the in the revision of the book. And the reason initially that she was put in there was because Dahlia had like basically has no one in her life because she has these weird relationships with her family members and she's spent the last 10 years searching for Andy, her twin. So she has she hasn't made any relationships with other people. So it made her seem this was my editor's point, it made her seem like a little unrelatable that she didn't have anyone really. So she needed a friend. She needed someone that she was close to. And then as I started thinking about what purpose will that friend serve, I thought of this Greta character as another kind of facet to the whole true crime world, which is these citizen detectives who spend all their free time on message boards and and researching things about these cold cases to try to solve them. And I thought that that would be a really great person for Dahlia to have on her side as she's trying to figure out what happened to her brother um, because his death is also possibly, she thinks, linked to this serial killer that was on their island for a couple of decades and now has been dormant for a little while. So she enlists Greta's help to um, look into things that she doesn't have access to that Greta just kind of knows how to do because she's done this so much. And so she's sort of a She's like a little helper character in that regard, but also she is part of Dahlia's journey because even though Greta is her friend, she still has kind of kept her at arm's length because she 
doesn't know how to trust people really, which is which is all a effect of being steeped in the true crime world her whole life, that everything seems like a possible danger. Um, and so there's sort of an arc with those two characters in terms of their friendship and and can she let this person in beyond just like helping her with something on sort of a technical level? Can she also receive emotional support from her? Yeah. And there was a quite uh, there was a statement her sister Tate says. She says something about having a friend or having friends and Dahlia says I have one friend and and she says it like very you know she's defending herself and she's like I have one friend and her sister's like yeah one friend that tells you a lot you know (laughs) so it's amazing what our secondary characters can tell us so much more about our main characters despite you know the the other um, plot points etc they serve in in the story. Mm -hmm. Megan thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us for our listeners the family plot It's a wonderful novel. It's a real page turner. Go out, get it, spread the word. And we hope to have you back on the podcast for the next one. I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing this limited omniscient point of view. Yes, thank you. Thank you for having me. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who is in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and -and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com slash course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com slash course. Use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. 
And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who is in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com slash course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com slash course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.